0: Opening our sermon series, Scale the Mountain, Worshiping God from the Songs of His People, uh, finishing up our sermon series over the next uh, month or month and a half or so on the Psalms. We are um, more, we're on the back end of the Psalms at this point. We're going to be in Psalm 127 this morning. Uh, well, there's a uh, book. That has been on the Amazon best selling nonfiction list uh, for quite some time. The book is called Atomic Habits. Anyone heard of this book? Yeah, okay. So it's on the Amazon best selling uh, nonfiction list for 259 weeks in a row. Now, I don't think it's number one on that every one of those times, but it is number one right now. Uh, so I'm not sure how long it's been number one, but it, that's a really long time for a book to be on that. Uh, list. Uh, Atomic Habits, the the book is about uh, creating uh, small changes in your life and how to change your habits in in different ways and all these things. And it's not the only book on the list that has a similar theme to it. Clearly in our culture right now, there is an appetite for uh, what does it mean to live a full life? And what are some things that I can adjust about my life to make it better? Can I make small shifts to make myself more successful in various ways? Can I do all of these things to change and grow? Now, I've not read the book, and I'm sure it's helpful. uh, And I think books like that are helpful. Uh, So, you know, nothing against the book. but But I do think there is this reality in which we are expecting the ability for us to change our own lives with just some new self-willed determination. If I can just work harder at these things, I can really change my life. Well, uh, what if you try that and it doesn't work? Or what if you're just like, I'm just not there. I just can't. Will myself to more improvement. And I don't feel like I'm living a thriving, full life. Like I feel like I'm barely getting by. What do I do with that? And maybe some of you are there this morning. I know I am. So what do we do with that? What do we do when we feel like we're barely getting by? We're not sure how to thrive. We're not necessarily thriving. Well, I think there are two options for us. We can go with the option of self-willed improvement, working hard to make ourselves better, or desperate dependence on the Lord. Now, there's a fine line between desperate dependence, which will cause action, and self-willed improvement, right? Because there, there are two very easy and obvious ways in which we as Christians should not pursue this, right? One is self-made, prideful productivity, right? That's easy to spot. Like, I look at me, I did the work, I did the thing, I improved myself, I am able to do all these things. Clearly, we're like, okay, that's not okay. But also, we're, we want to avoid a lazy, sort of apathetic Fake spirituality, which would be like, oh, if I just pray, the Lord will change me and everything will be fine and I don't have to do anything. Right? We intuitively know neither of those are the answer, right? Just avoiding God and just doing it all by yourself or leaning upon the Lord and not doing anything, right? Like that doesn't work either, right? Both of those clearly miss the mark, but there is a subtle fine line between self-willed improvement and desperate dependence. And that's what I want to look at today. And the reason there's a fine line between these two things is because desperate dependence will cause action that will look like the same kind of actions of self-willed improvement. Similar actions, like I want to grow in my Bible reading, okay? So I could be super disciplined and work really hard to get myself in line to do this, or I could be desperately dependent on the Lord, and I still have to be disciplined and work myself to to do the thing, right? Like the actions might look the exact same. But the disposition of my heart is completely different. The way in which my heart works is completely different. Often, the difference is not in the actions themselves, but in the disposition of my heart. Desperate dependence upon the Lord is not easy entitlement, where I just, because I'm a believer, because I trust in Jesus, God's just going to change me and grow me, and I don't have to do any work. Desperate dependence is not a lack of work or effort or sweat or endurance. Uh, one of the passages that shows this really well is Colossians chapter 1. Verses 28 and 29. This is Paul writing to the church. He says, So we tell others about Christ, warning, and teaching, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all the wisdom God has given us. We want to present them to God perfect in their relationship with Christ. That's why I work and struggle so hard depending on Christ's mighty power that works within me. You see that? He says, That's why I, whoop, Is it going to work? No? Oh, oh, yep, there it is. That's why I work, right? He says, that's why I work. This is my purpose. I want to teach everyone about Jesus. And so that's why I work and struggle so hard, right? That's why I work and struggle so hard, right? That word struggle has a lot to do with like agonizing efforts. Paul works really hard. Thanks, Chris. I was getting distracted by those lights over there. You just got a vibe here. It's the hats. <laughs> That's why I work and struggle so hard. Paul's like, I am working really hard. And if you read through the book of Acts, you know that Paul worked really hard. But what does he say? Depending on Christ's mighty power that works within me, You see, there's this connection between my struggling and the power that Christ has in me. It's this connection between the two of those things. So, efforts is not opposed to desperate dependence upon God. It's a both and. And so to figure out what this fine line between those two things looks like, we're going to look at Psalm 127. And if you remember, in this series, Scale the Mountain, scale is an acrostic representing uh, the story of God's work in our lives, Uh, looking at Christ and His work, how all the Psalms point to Christ, uh, our affections, our uh, motivations, our desires, our wills, our love is the L, our love of God, our love of the law, and our love of neighbor. And then finally the E is exaltation, our worship of God. All of these are the the themes that we're trying to look at as we walk through the Psalms together. So, Psalm 127. A song for pilgrims ascending to Jerusalem. A Psalm of Solomon. Unless the Lord builds a house, the work of the builders is wasted. Unless the Lord protects a city, guarding it with sentries will do no good. It is useless for you to work so hard from early morning until late at night, anxiously working for food to eat, for God gives rest to His loved ones. Children are a gift from the Lord. They are a reward from Him. Children born to a young man are like arrows in a warrior's hand. How joyful is the man whose quiver is full of them. He will not... Put to shame when he confronts his accusers at the city gates. Alright, so we're going to look through this psalm this morning, and, and it starts by saying it is a psalm of, uh, for pilgrims ascending to Jerusalem. So there's a series of psalms, and this is in the middle of this series of song, psalms called the Psalms of Ascent. And these were psalms used by those making pilgrimages to Jerusalem uh, regularly, right? Throughout the year, there would be multiple places in which you were coming to Jerusalem to worship God at the temple for a festival. And so these psalms were used in that way. And so this one, it says, is written by Solomon. And so it is probably written by Solomon uh, at a different occasion and then repurposed when the Psalms were put together in order to fit itself in this uh, Psalms of Ascent. It says, Unless the Lord builds the house, builds a house, the work of the builders is wasted. The work of the builders is wasted. Now, Right? It says, uh, this is the same concept that we saw in Colossians, right? They're still working. It's not that God is building the house without human effort and input, but that God is building the house through human effort and input, right? It says, unless the Lord builds a house, the work of the builders is wasted. It doesn't go on to say, therefore, don't work, and the Lord will build the house, right? right? It says, unless the Lord is in it, the work is wasted. Meaning the work is still going to happen, right? Now, how do we apply this? Should we all just start building houses? Is that what this is talking about? Like, we got to get, everyone get a hammer, let's go? I, I mean, I'm, I'm down. I'm ready to go. Let's do it. But, what? I do need another project. I, I agree, I agree. My wife's not here to object. She's watching at home, so, you know. Jim said it was okay. I need another project, all right. We're ready to go. Let's build some houses. <laughs> There's a little bit of a delay, so I, it'll just be a few minutes before I hear that. All right. No, it's not about that. When the psalmist is talking about a house, he's talking about the temple. The temple of the Lord. This place in which God is going to come and dwell with His people. Well, so does that mean we should build a temple? No, that's not what that means. If we think about the way in which the New Testament works, if we see Ephesians chapter 2, it says this, so, you, so now you Gentiles are no longer strangers and foreigners. You are citizens along with all of God's holy people. You are members of God's family. Now get this, together we are His house, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, and the cornerstone is Christ Jesus Himself. We are carefully joined together in Him, becoming a holy temple for the Lord. Through Him, you Gentiles are also being made part of this dwelling where God lives by His Spirit. The house of the Lord is the church. The church of Jesus Christ. Not the physical buildings of the church, but the church itself, the people of God. And in particular, we see in this passage that what Paul is doing in Ephesians is saying that the New Testament church, which is both je- made of Gentiles and Jews, comes together as the multi-ethnic New Testament church, the Jew and Gentile church of the Lord Jesus Christ, and is the household of God. It is the household of God. Now, the, the Jew and Gentile coming together in this, we talk about that a lot here at City Hope, right? Right? That this is a huge shift in the way in which God is working in the world. He's saying, you who were far off, right? The, the way in which the biblical storyline works is that there are the, the people of God in the Old Testament, that God is working through the nation of Israel, the people of God, and then there's everyone else. Now, there's all sorts of different divisions among the Gentiles, but the the way in which the New Testament writers use the word Gentile meaning everyone outside of the Jewish people. And what Jesus accomplishes is to say that the church is now both Jew and Gentile together. It is intentionally people from every tribe, from every language, from every nation, from every people. It is all the families of the earth blessed through coming to the Lord Jesus. This Vision of the multi ethnic church, in particular in our country around this time of year, right? With MLK Day tomorrow, it is a thing that feels incredibly daunting and overwhelming. To get people who are different from one another, racially, ethnically, culturally, to come together into one house, to be built into one house. Now, I've got an old house downtown, right? And when you try and mix new materials and old materials, sometimes you get some weird combinations of things. You're like, this doesn't quite fit. Let's make it fit. Let's figure out how to make it fit. But it's kind of difficult to put new styles of architecture or new materials up against old materials. And that's difficult. And yet we're talking about The people of God. With all of our history, with all of our cultural understandings, with all of our ethnicities, coming together as one people to be one house together, that's overwhelming. That's daunting. We've been at this as a a church, right? For a little over six years. And it's still overwhelming and daunting. It's still the thing that we say we are seeking to be a diverse people because we know we're never going to arrive in any real way. We don't really arrive at that thing. It's a mission that we are constantly pursuing. What does it mean for us to be a multi-ethnic people? That vision is overwhelming and daunting, which is why this psalm is so helpful. It says, unless... The Lord builds a house. The work of the builders is wasted. Unless the Lord does it. If we're going to pursue, what does it mean for us to seek to be a diverse people saved by Jesus, centered on Jesus, and sent by Jesus? We have to know desperate dependence which causes action. Desperate dependence upon the Lord, which causes action, not self-willed improvement. Now, the difference of this is uh, very important for us. Not self-willed improvement, but desperate dependence, which causes action. Because the actual actions will look similar. Right? If you wanted to pursue what it meant to be a diverse church... There are a whole lot of best practices and strategies and all of these things that you could implement. And that's a good thing. We should be intentional in our mission and effort. We should intentionally pursue what it means for us to live a multi-ethnic life individually and then corporately. We should intentionally pursue what it means to be a church that is hospitable, that reaches out to our neighbor, that loves our neighbor well, We should grow in our understanding of our nation and our city's history. Like, why are there these divisions that exist here, right? So when Paul walks into a place and says that Jew and Gentile are coming together to be the people of God together, that God's building this house, he's not doing so without knowing anything about the group of people that are bringing together. Like, he knows when he says this, like, there's some conflict here. He knows what that conflict looks like and he's intentionally entering into it. So if we are to be a diverse people here in this place, we should know the history of this place. We should study that. We should wrestle with historical injustices that exist, generational things that are going on. We should wrestle through those things. God's multi-ethnic mission requires intentional effort towards diversity. The reality is every New Testament letter deals with this conflict. Every single one of them. Everyone that Paul, every one of the churches that Paul plants, he is writing back to them and in some way dealing with this conflict at some point because he intentionally created churches that were both Jew and Gentile together. Not, hey, here's the church on this side of town where the Jews go. Here's the church on this side of town where the Gentiles go. Because it's, it's hard enough to get people to believe in Jesus Why don't we make it easier and just make it so that you're just around the people that are like you and you don't have to cross any other cultural barriers, right? Like, let's just do that. You get the group of people that are like you together and let's talk about Jesus together. And and then you over there, you get the group of people that are like you together and let's talk about Jesus over there. Well, the problem is that that's exactly not what Jesus accomplished. (laughs) Jesus actually accomplished bridging those things. And that's much harder and more frustrating, and more difficult, and slow. All of those things. Why, why would we do that? The other seems so much simpler. Why would we do that? Because we need to be desperately dependent upon the Lord. City hope, Us existing in this place at this time as we are together, knowing that we're not all that that we dream to be always, that's always true, right? We're always pushing those things. We are still a miracle that unless God did this thing, this doesn't make any sense. It doesn't make any sense that this group of people would gather together and love one another unless the Lord was in it and doing it. Unless the Lord was doing it. We need to have intentional effort towards these things because it's not simply going to happen if we just preach the gospel and do nothing else. Like we have to be intentional about preaching the gospel and building relationships and learning and growing and developing and all of these things. It won't happen just because we want it and we're committed to it. We have to actually put forth effort in it. And that's part of our strategic plan as a church Continuing to pursue what it means to be a diverse people. But it can't slip into self willed improvement. Self willed improvement would look like us doing all of the best practices, you know, reading the right books, attending the right conferences, maybe getting a consultant, walking through all of the right things, but no desperate dependence and prayer know of the secret work that no one sees of praying that the Lord would do a thing. And what it would end up looking like is a lot of anxiety and burden. Do we have enough? Are we diverse enough? Are we doing the thing enough? Are we whatever enough? And seeing that anxiety and burden on our own. A good way to check ourselves if we're slipping into self-willed improvement and not desperate dependence upon the Lord is, is our work in this way producing a whole lot of anxiety in us and burden upon us to do the thing, or are we dependent upon the Lord and content with what He's doing? It's a good way to check ourselves. And the only one who can see the difference between those two things is the Lord. Well, it's not just that the Lord builds a house, right? He says here, Unless the Lord builds a house, the work of the builders is wasted. Unless the Lord protects a city, guarding it with sentries will do no good. The city of Jerusalem, for the Old Testament people of God, is the place of God's chosen dwelling. Now, we spent a lot of time walking through uh, the book of Revelation, right? Before uh, I went on sabbatical, we walked through the book of Revelation. We talked a lot about the reality of the way in which the New Testament looks at the nation of Israel and the city of Jerusalem and all of these things as uh, uh, not, not understanding and looking at modern day Jerusalem and Israel as being equated with these, these realities, Right? Like, it's really important for us to distinguish that the church is a multinational, global phenomenon that's not related to specifically modern-day Jerusalem and Israel. And so, given the current reality what's going on in the Middle East right now, it's really important for us to remember that, lest we approach the situation in such a way that we just... Uh, avoid all of the complexity that goes there and just say, well, because we're Christians, we support Israel and Jerusalem no matter what. Like, that's not a a healthy Christian perspective because the church is the people of God that the Old Testament people of God in Israel were, and so we're not looking at a one-to-one of modern political things and prophecies around Jerusalem and all these other things, right? Like, that's really important. Now, in order for us to enter into that, to think well, to pray for peace, to enter in and to think about all of the complicated relationships around those things is really important. But it's really important for us not to equate the promises of God, like this one, to protect a city to modern-day Jerusalem. Does that make sense? Like, we have to understand that, and, and, and if you have questions about that, we can talk through that. I know we've talked about that a lot as a church uh, when we were in Revelation and other places, and so we could talk through that more. I just want to make a, a note of that in this sermon here. But the promises of God throughout the prophets are always bigger than Jerusalem and uh, Israel. Like all the promises of land, right? We looked at this in uh, the, the city, the new Jerusalem that comes out of heaven, right? It's like way bigger. It could not fit in this physical place. Because the point of it is that this is a global thing, that God is bringing in all the nations together. And so the promises are far bigger than the city itself. So what does the city then represent? Well, the city of Jerusalem, just like the house, represents the church, the global kingdom of God, and the Lord will protect it. Jesus himself says this, right? In Matthew 16, speaking to Peter, Peter has just confess that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of the living God. He says, now I say to you that you are Peter, which means rock, and upon this rock I will build my church and all the powers of hell will not conquer it. Jesus says, I will protect the church. This is really important. Because for us, if we're going to really pursue in desperate dependence upon the Lord, Building his church. We're going to need his protection. We're going to need to know that nothing, all the powers of hell cannot stop what the church is doing. Cannot stop it. One, uh, maybe the best example of this desperate dependence, unless the Lord does a thing, uh, in my mind, is Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the book of Daniel. You're unfamiliar with the story. There these three men who are uh, uh, the king is uh, the king of um, As- Assyria. Assyria, yeah, Nebuchadnezzar. He is. Uh, he has created uh, a golden statue of himself and requires everyone to worship it. And these uh, Jews decline to do so. They will not bow down to the statue, and so they're not going to do it and he throws them into a fiery pit after warning them that he's going to do that. And in their response, uh, before he does so, they, they say this, "Oh Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you. If we are thrown into the blazing fire, the God whom we serve is able to save us. He will rescue us from your power, your majesty. Now, now this is what they say after this, right? But even if he doesn't, we want to make it clear to you, Your Majesty, that we will never serve your gods or worship the gold statue you have set up. Their confidence is that the Lord will save them. But even if He doesn't, we're not going to disobey. Even if He doesn't, we're not going to disobey. Right? This is the theme that we walk through all of Revelation with, right? That God is calling the church to be victorious through suffering. Through difficulty, through suffering. There can be a lot of anxiety about the future of the church. When we talk about the Lord protecting the church, sometimes we get anxious about the future of the church. Cultural trends, persecution, any of those things, right? And we are tempted to find other solutions but desperate dependence upon the Lord. Maybe a political solution. Now, in saying this, like unless the Lord does the work, it doesn't mean that we check out of politics, right? We want to do politics for the good of our neighbor for sure. But does the future of the church depend on any political candidate? No. Absolutely not. In the next year, we are this year is an election year, we're going to be hit with all sorts of messages all the time. And some of those messages will make it seem as though if we don't do this one thing, the church will be affected in this super negative way or will cease to exist or all of these things, right? The rhetoric is so intense. And we can, as Christians, tone that down because that's not the solution that we look for. Unless the Lord does a thing, it doesn't matter. And the Lord has said that He will protect His church. So the Lord will do it. We can trust Him. We don't need to have fear and anxiety based cultural engagement. Right? Anytime we engage something in the culture, we should not go in with an attitude of fear or anxiety about what it is. We have the lion, the tribe of Judah on our side. Why are we afraid to walk into anything? We have the God of all truth on our side, and He has said the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. I will protect you. I will do this. Actually, the fear and anxiety-based cultural engagement is just adopting the same thing that our culture is doing. We engage every conversation and debate and a difference of opinion with fear and anxiety and speculation about the other person and demonizing them. Can the church not be a counter-cultural place where we have trust in the Lord and enter into these engagements with a non-anxious presence that can actually free us from those things and free us to love our neighbor, to care about the person on the other side of any of those conversations. When God's got the church, we can do that. When God has the church and specifically in the midst of facing suffering, not avoiding it, then it frees us to suffer for the sake of love of neighbor. When we talk about the Lord protecting the church, we're not talking about the Lord uh, helping us avoid any suffering or hardship. All the way through the book of Revelation, right? We saw that the church, the point of it was to say, church, don't be like Babylon. Don't use the tools of the world to accomplish this thing. Trust the Lord. Be the church. And do so in the midst of suffering. That your victory actually comes by suffering, just like Jesus' does. So you can embrace suffering for the good of your neighbor, because Jesus has our back. It's really important for us to know that the Lord protects. Well, the psalmist goes on, Unless the Lord builds a house, the work of the builders is wasted. Unless the Lord protects the city, guarding it with sentries will do no good. It is useless for you to work so hard from early morning until late at night, anxiously working for food to eat, for God gives rest to his loved ones. God provides for us work and food and rest. Now, this is where we literally build houses, right? (laughs) Or, Or any number of things that you do. Your work... Is a gift from God. Your work is a gift from God. It is provided by God. It is good. It is necessary. But your work alone will not provide what you need unless the Lord provides. The reality is, all of the work that you do, whatever job you have, whatever role you play, you do so because the Lord has given you skills and opportunities and all sorts of things. And we ought to recognize that the Lord is at work in our work. That we are able to do the things that we do because the Lord has already showed up in very real ways. And that means that we can trust Him and rest. What does he say? It is useless for you to work so hard from early morning until late at night, anxiously working for food to eat. Okay, so let's all just take six months off, right? It'll be fine. That sounds nice, doesn't it? That's not what he's saying. Throughout the history of the people of God, right? When we were in Exodus, we looked at this. It's so interesting that the Lord in, his, in the Ten Commandments, right, provides a commandment to rest. It's a commandment to rest. Are you sure you need to command that Lord? Because, like, actually he does. Because we saw throughout Exodus, right, the people of God, the Lord provides for them. He provides manna from heaven, and he says, just don't go collect it on the Sabbath. And what do they do? They go collect it on the Sabbath. Like, instantly. It's like, wait a second. The Lord just freed you by parting the water, and you walked through, and then he has given you bread in the morning from the dew, and now you're like, ah, I should collect more because he's probably not going to provide tomorrow. Now, we can laugh at that, but that's you. That's Chris, right? He, he, He owned it. But it's probably all of us, right? The Lord will provide. And so now, because the Lord will provide, and because I have work and because I have these things, I will anxiously think about these things over and over, and I will work extra over and over because I need to. Right? That's what we do. It's what we do. We anxiously work not trusting that the Lord has provided for us. Not trusting that the Lord will provide. This again is the barometer for us of desperate dependence versus self-willed improvement. Are we anxiously working for these things because we don't trust that the Lord will provide Or are we working hard knowing that we are desperately dependent on the Lord to show up for us to have provision? Now, I want to distinguish between this and this this anxiety that I'm talking about and, like, struggling with mental health and and clinical anxiety and these things. Like, that's a different category of brokenness that we experience as people that isn't, like, your fault, right? Right? We talk about this a lot as a church, right? It's not something that is like, oh, I'm doing this thing wrong and I am broken uniquely in this weird way. No, like humans experience anxiety. We experience those things because of the fall, because of our brokenness. We experience that stuff. And that is a good thing for us to talk about and to explore with one another through therapy, medicine, all of those things. What I'm talking about is a different thing, which is us, producing anxiety in us by a lack of trust and a working day and night to get a thing that the Lord has already said he would provide for you. You see the difference between those, right? Like that's a different thing. So, so don't hear what I'm not saying, right? Hear what I'm saying here. But us trying to work things out on our own. The Lord has commanded that we would work hard and that we would rest that we would sabbath that we would rest in him why is this one of the 10 commandments why is this if if you were to think of 10 things the 10 most important things that the lord should communicate rest is one of them yeah because it reveals who we trust do we trust us or do we trust the lord do we trust us or do we trust the Lord? Lord, you just don't get it. I need to work seven days. Lord, you just don't get it. I gotta do this thing. You don't know. You have you seen my bills? I think he has. He has seen them actually. He knows all things. This is wildly countercultural and will provide tons of opportunities for witnessing to the gospel. If we actually embrace this right now, embracing this does mean here's why the Lord commands this, right? Because embracing this means I'm not going to produce as much as I could, which means I'm going to have to sacrifice not what I need, but what I want. See, Sabbath challenges, not just my self-willed improvement and my pride and my trust in myself, it also challenges my greed. Because why do I need to struggle like that? Well, because I need that thing. It also challenges where I find my satisfaction or my self-worth. Because i got to be like everyone else and i got to get this thing and i got to do that. That challenges all of that. So if you really embrace that, if you really embrace what it means to rest in the Lord... People will look at you like you're crazy. And you get to tell them about the goodness of Jesus. And actually experience a peace that's not like the craziness. Right? Like that's the the crazy thing. People will look at you like you're crazy. What are you doing? You're resting like that? You got to grind. You got to get to work. Actually, the craziness is this anxiety producing, never ending like craziness that we're all engaged in let's take a step back from that rest before the Lord trust that he will provide and we get to witness to the gospel in that way alright now the text takes a weird turn at least it feels like a weird turn God provides rest and then God provides children those two things don't go together In in my experience, rest and children aren't things that go together, but this is what the Lord does. He says, children are a gift from the Lord. They are a reward from him. Children born to a young man are like arrows in a warrior's hand. How joyful is the man whose quiver is full of them. He will not be put to shame when he confronts his accusers at the city gates. Now, certainly there are some cultural things going on in this text talking about what it means uh, in a culture like this, what having uh, offspring and descendants meant. It's very, very important in this culture. Now, really important, it, anytime we talk about children, and in particular, words like children are a gift from the Lord, they are a reward from Him, it's really important to mention and to note that throughout the scriptures, one of the most important themes is that of childlessness, barrenness. One of the most important themes is what does it mean to trust the Lord? in the absence of these things. So if you are one who has experienced the difficulty of that, whether that's through miscarriage or through uh, barrenness or through uh, not being married when you want to be and not having children when you want to, all of those things, the Lord sees, the the Lord knows, and the the Lord... Not the Nord. The Lord... Loves. The Lord sees, the Lord knows, and then the Lord loves. This is a place in which the Lord actually shows up in great tenderness and care. And some of the most important things that happen in the scriptures happen in the context of this. Also, the reality is that not experiencing these things, having children, is not a mark of you being lesser than uh, actually the apostle Paul uh, says that uh, singleness is the desired state in the new testament like he says it's it, i wish all of you were like me but since you're not let's do this other thing right so like he, he like walks through all that but he does say that this is a greater thing because you get to experience different things with the lord Remember, we together are the family of God. We just talked about this. The the house is the church, the family of God. So the children of the church, the children of believers together, we belong to one another. And so when we talk about children, when we talk about any of those things, it's not just for parents, it's for everyone who's a part of this church because there are children who are a part of this church. They are members of the household with us. Right? So when we talk about children's ministry or any of the other things that we talk about here as a church, we're not talking to parents or for parents. We're talking to the church for the church. It's the responsibility of the entire church to love and raise children to know the Lord. For all of us. And it's the responsibility of the entire church to welcome those without children into our lives in the exact same way. Loving them, caring for them, showing them their dignity and value and worth, and not simply uh, uh, waiting on them to, to arrive as a full human when they get married and have kids. Because that's not the thing. Because if that was true, Jesus wouldn't be fully human. So that's a problem. We can't, we, can't, we can't do that, right? We can't do that openly, and we can't do that subtly. And if there are ways in which our church has done that to you, please come talk to me. I would love to just apologize and to walk through what does it look like for us to do better as a church um, and and as individuals in loving those uh, without children well. Now, having said that, this says, children are a gift from the Lord. Now, do we see parenting like this? taking a big drink. I know I often don't. Parenting is... I think one of the hardest thi- is the hardest thing I've ever done. But when it's hard, what do I do? Do I go for self-willed improvement or desperate dependence? Self-willed improvement looks like trying different techniques, figuring out, reading the right books, knowing the right things, and a whole lot of anxiety. Desperate dependence means prayer knowing and loving the person that is our child and then trying to figure it out and making a whole lot of mistakes. And when you make a whole lot of mistakes, apologizing and making more. Right? That's what it is. It's a place that causes desperate dependence. Right? Now, again, the Lord provides rest. The Lord provides work. The Lord provides children. And even in the midst of that, what it means for us to be desperately dependent is to trust that even if the Lord has provided children, he has also provided rest, and we can do both of those. That means we're going to have to actually think through what does it mean to rest in the Lord and do these other things, right? Like, that's hard work. But it causes us to have desperate dependence upon the Lord. Now, here's the thing. Solomon wrote this. So Solomon, he had a fulfilling life, right? A full life. Had a house that was built by the Lord, a city that was protected, and children that were a blessing. You guys read the Old Testament? I don't think Solomon actually worked out that way, right? Built the temple, yeah. Pretty sure that one got destroyed. The city, yeah, I'm pretty sure it got destroyed too. His children, well, several difficult situations happen with Solomon's children, right? Right, like the whole books of First and Second Kings and First and Second Chronicles is just walking through. Well, this king was pretty good, and then his son was wicked, and then his son was wicked, and then oh, and then it just got real crazy, right? Like all the time. Solomon actually doesn't. F- receive all of these things we have to look to a better solomon we have to look to christ christ who builds the church protects the church and provides for the church but even in looking to christ to provide those things you might be in a place where you feel like but what if he's not What if everything in my life looks like he's not building the church or protecting the church or providing for me or providing for the church? What if everything in my life says the opposite? Well, the book of Habakkuk, chapter 3, says this. Even though the fig trees have no blossoms and there are no grapes on the vines, even though the olive crop fails and the fields lie empty and barren, even though the flocks die in the fields and the cattle barns are empty, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in the God of my salvation. The sovereign Lord is my strength. He makes me as sure-footed as a deer able to tread upon the heights. This is a, a, a part of the prophecy that is for the choir director, right? It's a prayer. It's a psalm, in order to be sung together. Why? Because we need to know that unless the Lord builds a thing, means desperate dependence, which means trusting even in the absence of the evidence of blessing. Even when it looks like we shouldn't trust, we trust unless the Lord builds a thing, it doesn't happen because of Jesus. Because Jesus, the better Solomon who provides a better restoration, He Himself who provides that experienced a loss of provision. Experienced a loss of protection. And a loss of the building up. He experienced great loss and He did so in order for us to be welcomed into the family of God. This whole thing of Jew and Gentile welcome together into the household of God is because Jesus experienced great loss so that our sin can be atoned for so that we can enter in. Therefore, in the midst of the difficulty, we can trust that He knows not just what we need, but what it looks like to not get what you need. And we can experience His presence in a unique and tender way in those moments. And so, for us as a church, we need to recognize that we need desperate dependence upon the Lord. That unless the Lord is at work, it won't happen. And therefore, we will trust Jesus and continue to cling to Him. Let's pray together. Father, we come to You now and we ask that You would be at work. Lord, unless you are at work, we cannot see you building, you providing, you protecting. Lord, we desperately need you to show up. And Lord, we desperately need you to show up just so that we could trust and desperately need you. So Lord, would you work powerfully by your Spirit in us that we would trust in you, that we would cling to you, that we would look to you and that You would do all these things for Your glory. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.